You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. So imagine you're in this situation. It's the early 1950s, you're a young woman in your early 20s, you're unmarried, and suddenly you find out that you're pregnant. Just what would you do? Well, this is the exact situation that a young Boston resident named Marjorie McCoy found herself in. At the time, she was a student at the Children's Hospital of Nursing, and when she learned that she was pregnant, her mom took her to see the family doctor. That's Dr. Herman Sands. He suggested that the best solution would be to place the child up for adoption, and they agreed. Dr. Sands referred them to Salem, Massachusetts attorney Philip Strom, who could, quote, handle the whole matter and keep things quiet. Strom found the perfect couple to adopt the baby. That was 39-year-old Melvin Ellis and his 31-year-old wife, Frances. Melvin owned Bentley's Cleansers, a dry cleaning plant in Boston, and was reported to have an annual income in excess of $10,000. That's more than $97,000 today adjusted for inflation. The two had married in 1946, but soon learned that they would be unable to have a child of their own. Desperate to adopt, they offered to pay all of Marjorie's medical costs plus any legal fees incurred. Marjorie and her mom agreed to the terms of the deal, and to avoid the embarrassment of being pregnant out of wedlock, Marjorie headed out to California to stay with her married sister. As the birth approached, she returned back east and waited at her time in a rented room located on Beacon Street in the back base section of Boston. It was on February 23rd of 1951 in Boston's Kenmore Hospital that Margie would deliver a healthy six-pound girl. The baby was whisked away without Marjorie ever laying sight on the newborn. Then, ten days later, in Attorney Strom's office, Mr. and Mrs. Ellis would sign the papers to adopt their new daughter. She was named Hildy. Next, Dr. Sands took the papers to Marjorie and she added her signature to them. It was a double-blind signing so that Margie would not learn the names of the adoptive parents, and of course vice versa. And with that, if this were to be the typical adoption, everyone involved would have gone on to happily live their lives. But that was not to be the case. A few weeks later, Hildy's adoption would be completely thrown into chaos. 
Marge was informed by attorney Philip Strom that there had been a technical glitch in the adoption proceedings, and that's because her first signature had not been notarized and dated. So, just as a matter of routine, Marjorie went to Strom's office on March 27, 1951, you know, to sign a new set of documents. While doing so, Marjorie, who was Catholic, learned that the Ellises were not. In fact, they were Jewish. This greatly disturbed Marjorie, and she desired that her daughter be placed in a Catholic home. Marjorie became apprehensive at signing the new documents, but Strom assured her that the adoption would not be finalized for another year and that she would, quote, have time to think it over and change her mind. So she just signed the papers and left his office. At some point in April, Marjorie once again went to see Dr. Sands and informed him that she didn't approve of Hildy being raised in a Jewish household by parents who had both been previously divorced and wished to have the adoption reversed. What's interesting here is that Marjorie still had no desire to keep Hildy. She simply wanted another couple to adopt the child and raise her as Catholic. As a result, Marjorie requested that the court allow her to withdraw her consent. Coincidentally, just months prior, the Massachusetts legislature had enacted a statute that read, in part, quote, In making orders for adoption, the judge when practicable, must give custody only to persons of the same religious faith as that of the child. <laughs> Let's face it, what are the chances of there not being a single Catholic couple in the entire state of Massachusetts who would be willing to adopt a newborn blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl? It was next to impossible. Now I should point out that at the time of Hildy's birth, neither Marjorie nor the Ellises knew of this new legislation but the law was clearly on Marjorie's side. Marjorie and the Ellis's met for the first time in May of 1951. Now, what exactly happened during this meeting depends on whose side seemed more plausible. Marjorie's attorney insisted that they requested the child be returned, but the Ellis's refused and the meeting ended with both sides angrily in complete disagreement. Yet, Mrs. Ellis told the press, quote, It was all quite friendly. We discussed the petition, and when we left, Marjorie said to me, quote, I hope you keep the child. I can't go on paying for this all my life. In early 1952, the Ellis's saw court intervention to resolve the problem, but the judge advised the couple to await the outcome of a similar case that involved a Catholic mother and Protestant foster parents, which had been winding its way through the Massachusetts courts. In June, this particular case was decided in favor of the adoptive couple, so the Ellises took this as a good sign that they would prevail in court. A little side note here, Hildy's real father was a Protestant, not Catholic, but for some reason the couple had no desire to marry. It wouldn't be until June of 1953 that the case would finally be heard by Dedham Probate Judge James F. Reynolds. This would be the first time that Marjorie McCoy would see her daughter Hildy, and after a four-and-a-half-day hearing, Judge Reynolds ruled against the Ellises. He determined it be in Hildy's best interest that the adoption was nullified, and the child returned to Marjorie McCoy so that she could place her with the Catholic Charitable Bureau 
you know, to be readopted. Needless to say, the Ellises were in deep shock. Hildy was now two years old and the couple was the only parent she had ever known. Regarding Marjorie, Mrs. Ellis stated, quote, If she had said to me at our first meeting, I will fight for my baby for myself, I would have had to give her back. But that's not what she was doing. It was shortly after this decision, on July 21, 1953, that Marjorie McCoy married Gerald Doherty, who was not Hildy's father. They would soon start a family of their own, of course, but Hildy was not to factor into that equation. The Ellis' battle to adopt Hildy did not end with Judge Reynolds' decision. They appealed the case to the Massachusetts Supreme Court, and shortly after they did, on October 6th of 1954, keep in mind Hildy's now three and a half years old, the story finally broke in the newspapers. Soon the adoption of Hildy McCoy would become front-page headlines, not for days, not for weeks, and not for months. It was front-page headlines for years. It would become the most controversial and most widely reported adoption story of the 1950s. Mrs. Ellis stated at the time, quote, Hildy is our whole life. It would be cruel and inhuman to take her away. This is the only family she has ever known. The full bench of the Massachusetts Supreme Court handed down its decision on February 14th of 1955. Hildy is now almost four years old. They upheld Judge Reynolds' ruling and ordered that the Ellises return Hildy to her natural mother. Now keep in mind that the judges were strictly focused on the law, and that did allow the natural mother of the child to withdraw her petition for adoption for a period of one year. All of the justices involved, although deemed heartless by the press, were simply interpreting the regulations as written. On April 26, which is a couple of months after that Supreme Court ruling, Marjorie McCoy Doherty and two social workers arrived at 231 St. Paul Street in Brookline, Massachusetts to remove Hildy from the Ellis' home. Marjorie told Mrs. Ellis, quote, I've come for the child. Mrs. Ellis refused their request as Hildy, who was dressed for bed, held on to her adoptive mother's skirt. The three women soon left, only to return a short time later with a police officer. Now, he made no attempt to take the child, but he did tell Mrs. Ellis that he was only there to inform her that the court had ordered the return of Hildy to her natural mother. Shortly after the four left, Mrs. Ellis quickly wrapped Hildy in blankets, and they drove 68 miles, that's 110 kilometers, they drove to her brother's home in Newport, Rhode Island. Two weeks later, on May 11th, the Ellis' attorney, uh, this guy named James Zisman, requested that the Massachusetts Supreme Court issue a stay of execution on Judge Reynolds' decision. Zisman stated, quote, It would be a sad situation, a tragedy to uproot this child from its present surroundings and send her to an institution. He continued, Mr. and Mrs. Ellis will take this child to the Catholic Church and bring her up in the Catholic faith. Their love for this child is so great that they would bring her up under the supervision of the local Catholic priest, send her to a parochial school, even place her in a convent where she would come home only on weekends. The court declined this request. 
Now, the Ellis's may have lost the case, but they were not about to turn over Hildy without a fight. They continued to ignore the court order requiring them to return Hildy to her natural mother, so on Wednesday, June 15th, Judge Reynolds had finally had enough. He set a deadline for Friday at 2 p.m. for the Ellis's to turn over Hildy McCoy. If they failed to do so, the couple would be placed in jail. He stated, quote, The mother's been trying to get the child back into her possession since the child was six weeks old. If these people had turned the child over to the mother, then they would not have become so attached to her. Well, the very next day, that's June 16th in 1955, Supreme Court Justice Harold B. Williams issued a stay of execution of Judge Reynolds' court order, and he scheduled a hearing for June 22nd. After that, on June 28th, the Supreme Court dismissed the couple's petition, and they ordered that Hildy be turned over to her natural mother within 24 hours, where they would, quote, go to jail. As you can probably guess, that day came and went. The Ellis's were just nowhere to be found. They basically had gone into hiding. In a phone interview with a reporter, Mr. Ellis stated, quote, I'm scared stiff of jail, but I'm like any other father when they take his child away. He added, We'll fight to the finish, hoping that we can have Hildy, or at least the mother will take her into her own home instead of a foster home. I don't know what we'll do. In the meantime, Attorney Zisman once again approached the Massachusetts Supreme Court. This time he argued that Judge Reynolds had acted improperly by ordering the arrest of the Ellises without a proper hearing. The couple was granted a two-week delay while the lower court's ruling was being reviewed. But that delay wasn't about to stop Judge Reynolds. He simply was growing tired of all this stalling. While his order to have the Ellis's arrested may have been placed on hold for two weeks, that decision really had nothing to do with Hildy herself. So on July 9th, he ordered that the sheriffs in all the Massachusetts counties find Mr. and Mrs. Ellis and take Hildy into custody. Quote, We command you that the body of female McCoy, also known as Hildy C. Ellis of Brookline, minor child of Marjorie McCoy Doherty, you take and have before the judge of the probate court at Dedham immediately after receipt of the writ to do and receive what the judge shall then and there consider concerning her in this behalf. On July 18th, Attorney Zisman filed six new petitions with the Norfolk Probate Court claiming that Marjorie had given false testimony and that she had, quote, deliberately imposed a fraud upon the court. Basically, Two nurses who had spoken with her at the time of Hildy's birth signed affidavits claiming that Marjorie was fully aware from the very beginning that the Ellises were Jewish. Nurse Jessie C. Centro said that Marjorie had asked her to go check out the people and, quote, let me know what they're like. When Centro returned, she reported that they were, quote, a lovely Jewish couple. She added, you know the baby is going to a Jewish home. Are you going to have her baptized? To this, Marjorie replied, My only concern is to get this thing over with and get my own life straightened out. The other nurse was Dorothy H. Ingersoll. She told of how she took the baby to Marjorie's bedside the day after Hildy was born, and Marjorie quickly turned her head away and would not look at the newborn. 
Miss Ingersoll then stated, quote, Your baby is going to Jewish people, to which Marjorie replied, What's wrong with that? As convincing as this new evidence may be, Judge Reynolds informed Attorney Zisman that he would hear no new motions concerning the case unless the Ellises and Hildy appeared before him. Quote, I want the Ellises brought before the court and the baby before the court. I will hear all matters when everyone is before the court. As you can probably guess, the Ellises were once again no-shows. As a result, on November 3, 1955, Judge Reynolds dismissed all six of those newly filed petitions and noted that, quote, the petitioners have not been deprived of their day in court. And again after this, the Ellises filed another appeal with the state Supreme Court. Now this game of ricocheting back and forth between Judge Reynolds and the Massachusetts Supreme Court would continue, so I'm not going to bore you with the details. In total, 22 different appeals were filed, and they were all denied by the state Supreme Court. Their last decision was handed down on September 28th of 1956. The last legal door had been shut on the Ellises. The couple now legally had no choice but to turn five-and-a-half-year-old Hildy over to her natural mother, who would in turn put her up for adoption. The only problem in this plan was that no one had seen the Ellises. They hadn't been spotted since the day when Marjorie and the two social workers showed up at the Ellis home. Seventeen months had since elapsed. Were they still in Massachusetts? Were the Ellises even still in the United States? Just where were the Ellises? While we wait to find out where they were, let me just tell you that a big legal change occurred in March of 1957. That was when Massachusetts Associate Justice Edward A. Cunahan concluded that the Ellises had committed the crime of kidnapping and an indictment was handed down. Well, not long after this, Melvin Ellis made the mistake of trying to purchase a new car in Miami Beach, Florida. Since he was trading in his old vehicle, the dealer made a routine check to confirm that there were no liens on the car. That's when the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles informed the dealer that the couple was wanted on a kidnapping charge. At approximately 2 p.m. on Friday, March 15th of 1957, Ellis arrived at the dealer to pick up his new car, unaware that a trap had been set. Shortly after walking into the dealership showroom, he was approached by two officers and, of course, taken into custody. Ellis was then escorted to Miami Police Headquarters where he was fingerprinted, his mugshot was taken, and of course he was placed into a jail cell. A short time later, a detective went to the Ellis' Normandy Isle apartment and arrested Mrs. Ellis. Now neither would have to spend very long in custody. Their Florida attorney, a new character in the story, their Florida attorney Benjamin Cohn quickly arranged for their release without bail and a hearing was set for the following Monday. So at that hearing on March 18th of 1957, Massachusetts State Police Detective Lieutenant William H. DeLay requested that the Ellises be held on $5,000 bond, but the magistrate once again opted to release the couple into the custody of their attorney, Cohen. Mr. Ellis told the press, quote, Never once during all the courtroom proceedings in Massachusetts did the court ever consider Hildy's welfare. I don't care if I go to jail. The main thing is the girl's happiness, and she wouldn't be happy in a Catholic orphanage and any other kind of orphanage. He continued, We are not criminals. 
We have not done anything wrong. We just want our girl. We are not running anymore. This is a last stand. A final battleground for Hildy's life and her future. We do not want this sword hanging over us. The couple have been in hiding for nearly two years. So just where were they all this time? Well, first, as previously mentioned, after Marjorie and the two social workers arrived at the Ellis' home on April 26, 1955, Mrs. Ellis and Hildy went to Newport, Rhode Island. They would stay there for three weeks. After that, they went to stay with friends in Sharon, Massachusetts. And then, for a short period of time, they did return back to their home in Brookline, but they went back into hiding when the couple was ordered to turn over Hildy or risk going to jail. From there, they proceeded to Tuckahoe, New York, and then they moved on to a five-week stay with relatives in Levittown, Pennsylvania. Next was White Plains, New York, followed by a six-month stint in Manhattan, and finally a short stay in Scarsdale, New York. Finally, in April 1956, the couple decided they needed to move out of the northeastern United States. It was at that point the couple headed for Florida. They moved into their Normandy Isle apartment in May of 1956. As for employment, Melvin Ellis was forced to sell his lucrative dry cleaning business. At the time of his arrest, he was working as a traveling salesman for a New York clothing firm, selling both sportswear and lingerie. Hildy was enrolled as a first grader in the private Lear School in Miami Beach. The battle to return Hildy, Francis, and Melvin Ellis back to the state of Massachusetts had begun. In one corner, you had public opinion, which overwhelmingly supported allowing the Ellises to adopt Hildy. In the opposing corner, there was the state of Massachusetts. They sought their immediate return so the various court decisions could be executed. It was estimated that the governor of Florida's office received 10,000 letters, telegrams, or signed petitions from people who opposed the extradition of the Ellises. In comparison, an estimated 100 letters were received expressing their belief that they should be extradited back to Massachusetts and that Hildy should be returned to her natural mother. Many others expressed their opinions by writing to the local newspapers. Here's just a small sampling, and I mean very small sampling. There were a lot of letters. Here's a small sampling of these letters to the editors. On April 5, 1957, Anthony Cook wrote to the Miami Herald, quote, Evidently you didn't bother trying to find the facts in this case, or you deliberately withheld them in order to create sympathy toward the Ellises. He continues, The Ellises illegally obtained the child from Dr. Herman Sand, and also paid him a large sum of money for the favor. In spite of the fact that Dr. Sam promised Marjorie McCoy, the child's real mother, he would make sure the child be placed in a Catholic home. A letter simply signed, A Mother, appeared in the April 8, 1957 publication of the Miami Herald. Quote, Think of the scars that would be inflicted permanently if Hildy were separated suddenly from all the love and security she has known for years. There is more to motherhood than the act of conceiving. The letter continues, We are all talking tolerance. Why don't we practice it? Let this Jewish couple bring up their child as a Catholic. I cannot believe in my heart that any religion would willfully gamble a helpless child's chance for happiness. 
And finally, we have a letter that's simply signed LMK and appeared in the May 3rd, 1957 issue of the Brooklyn Daily. Quote, After the passing of these past years of Hildy's life, the unwed mother who bore her, now married, decides to have this little one return. Not to her, but instead to a home for children and to be adopted all over again by a couple of her own faith. To make this little one an actual pawn, a chess piece to be moved hither and yon on the board of living, is not a sporting or good game, but it is a crooked and an absolute steal. Of course, public opinion doesn't always predict the outcome of legal matters. Almost immediately after the arrest of the Ellises, the state of Massachusetts had rendition papers drawn up seeking the couple's return, you know, to face kidnapping charges. Well, under Florida law at the time, Massachusetts had until midnight on April 17th, basically one month, to submit the signed extradition documents. Foster Fercola, who was the Massachusetts governor at the time, made it clear that he would sign the papers, but unfortunately that process did not go very smoothly. The first set of papers that was drawn up was rejected on March 27th on technical grounds. The second set was rejected on April 16th due to an incorrect date. And finally, on April 17th, that's the day it was due, Governor Fucolo signed the third revision and it was flown to Florida and submitted just prior to the midnight deadline. The next step was that Florida Governor Leroy Collins set a hearing on the extradition for May 23rd in Tallahassee. The million-dollar question was whether Governor Collins would give in to public pressure or instead, you know, side with the state of Massachusetts and send the Ellis's back to face the music. Just prior to the hearing, Melvin Ellis told the press, quote, If by serving a couple of years in prison I might settle the thing, I would not mind so much. But the thought of giving her up is more than I can bear. We are pinning our faith on the Lord and Governor Collins. You might be surprised to hear that Mrs. Ellis's biggest fear wasn't the kidnapping charge. Instead, she was concerned that the hearing would drag on and that she'd be unable to return in time to see and hear Hildy perform her part in the Lear School's presentation of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And that just happened to be part of her first grade moving up ceremony. Quote, Hildy will feel terrible if we're both not there. But even if Melvin has to stay in Tallahassee, I've got to get back for the exercises. And then the day came. Thursday, May 23rd of 1957. Governor Collins began the hearing before a standing room only crowd of approximately 125 people. Lawyers from both sides presented their case, but the session was surprisingly short, clocking in at about two hours in length. Governor Collins said that he based his decision on both legal and humanitarian grounds. He granted the Ellis's Florida sanctuary, and he refused to honor the extradition request from Massachusetts. Reporters questioned Mrs. Ellis shortly after the decision. When asked how she felt, she replied, quote, a little numb. Mrs. Ellis added, now I can sleep tonight. And when asked about attending Hildy's first grade graduation, she replied, I was going to make it if I had a walk back to Miami. 
and she did make it, and so did the press. Here's a bit of a story that appeared on May 24, 1957, in the Miami News. Quote, Hilde McCoy Ellis graduated today from the first to second grade at the Lear School, Miami Beach, in probably the world's most widely publicized Kitty Baccalaureate. The article continues. Some of the children marveled at the presence of the newsreel and television cameras and blinked in the strong lights. But most of them thought it was part of the coverage of the Lear School annual event. And this may have been a great day of celebration, but the Ellis' legal problems were not over. They may have avoided being extradited to face the kidnapping charges, but the issue of Hildy's legal adoption had not been settled. The Boston Roman Catholic Archdiocese strongly opposed the adoption, and on June 11, 1957, the Massachusetts Public Welfare Department submitted to the state of Florida 12 objections to the adoption, and they recommended that Mr. and Mrs. Ellis not be permitted to adopt Hildy. Both sides would get to present their cases before Circuit Judge John W. Prunty on July 8th of 1957. While that was going on, Hildy remained in the judge's chambers playing with her 12-year-old next-door neighbor, Vicki Miller. Now, Hildy was totally oblivious to what was going on outside in the courtroom, but two days later, Judge Prunty decreed that Hildy, quote, shall hereafter be known as Hildy Ellis. After more than six years of fighting for and fearing the loss of Hildy, she was now the legal daughter of Francis and Melvin Ellis. The next day, that's July 11, 1957, Hildy's natural mother Marjorie broke her silence for the first time. Quote, I am grateful to Massachusetts Justice for upholding my right to provide for my baby in accordance with conscience. I would not wish to see her further hurt by more of the publicity that was threatened to her and to me six years ago. Some day she will learn the facts about her mother's desire to protect her with the privacy that others were willing to destroy. Meanwhile, with prayers I hope many will share, I entrust her to the loving protection of God. The rest is in the hands of my attorneys. After this, the press would follow up on Hildy's story on special occasions, you know, like her birthday and the anniversary of her adoption, but there really was very little to report. Everything just seemed to be going well, and after a couple of years, the story just, you know, faded into history. Melvin Ellis told reporters that the fight to adopt Hildy had cost him over $60,000. That's nearly $600,000 today. He added, quote, but you can bet it was worth it. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. And so the case takes a baffling turn for Mr. Keene, tracer of lost persons. Meanwhile... Thousands of girls who suffer the heartache of being unpopular, clever, pretty, smartly dressed girls, have just one thing to blame, teeth that rob them of charm when they smile. Thousands of men whose livelihood depends on selling themselves to others have the same weakness of appearance to blame. They don't know it or notice it, but the people they contact do. You may or may not be one of those people, but if you have the slightest suspicion that you are, 
Try the new Colonos toothpaste, a high-polishing toothpaste. You'll find Colonos helps remove those dingy, unattractive surface stains from your teeth. Brings out all the natural luster and brilliance that adds so much to your smile. Start using the new Colonos tonight. Remember, it's a high-polishing toothpaste. You can get Colonos, K-O-L-Y-N-O-S, Colonos toothpaste at any drugstore. Now back to Mr. Keene as he returns once more to the home of Jimmy's parents. That commercial for Colonos toothpaste is from the February 10th, 1944 broadcast of Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons. This particular episode was titled The Case of the Boy Who Used Big Words. Now, the show consisted of a kindly old gentleman, that's Mr. Keene, and his assistant, an Irishman named Mike Clancy. Seems appropriate. And the two of them would just track down people who had mysteriously vanished. Mr. Keene, Trace of Lost Persons, basically tells you exactly what the show was about. Now, the show premiered on NBC's Blue Network on October 12, 1937. Then, in 1942 which is right around the time that NBC was forced to divest of their Blue Network, you know, which became ABC, the show moved to CBS. So I can't help but wonder if that's what triggered that move. Its last radio broadcast was on September 26, 1955, completing a nearly 18-year run on radio. As for Colonos, the toothpaste was created by two dentists, not one. The first was a guy named Newell Sill Jenkins. He was an American dentist living in Europe, and he formulated a porcelain enamel, which allowed for the creation of porcelain inlays, crowns, and bridges. You know, those things that are really costly. But as a result, he's considered to be the father of aesthetic dentistry. The other man was Willoughby Miller, another American dentist. Miller is credited with being the first oral microbiologist. In 1890, he proposed a still-valid theory that the fermentation of sugars by oral bacteria in your mouth produced acids that resulted in tooth decay. The two went on to develop Colonos, the first toothpaste to contain disinfectants. The name is derived from the Greek, and I know I'm going to mispronounce these, the Greek kolio, which is disease, and nosos, which is prevention. After 17 years of development and clinical testing, Jenkins retired and he turned his toothpaste formulation over to his son, a guy named Leonard A. Jenkins, and he is the one who's responsible for bringing it to the mass market. The first tubes of Colonos hit the market on April 13th of 1908, and it was an immediate success. By 1937, Colonos was being produced in 22 countries and distributed in 88 countries. Now, Colonos is basically non-existent in the United States today, so you might be surprised to learn that Colonos was purchased by Colgate Palmolive in 1995. The purchase price? One dollar. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. The purchase price, you're going to love this, $1.04 billion for a product you can't find in the United States. That's because the product had incredibly strong sales overseas, particularly in what we call Latin America. At the time of its sale, Colonos was the best-selling toothpaste in Argentina, Peru, and Paraguay. In Brazil, Colgate already had the number one selling toothpaste, and Colonos was number two. So due to antitrust concerns, Colgate Palmolive agreed to suspend marketing Colonos in Brazil for a number of years. But they had a simple workaround to this agreement. 
they simply took the colonos, maybe changed the formula slightly, but basically kept it intact, rebranded it Sorriso. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right either. Sorriso, which is Portuguese for smile, and they created packaging nearly identical to Colonos. And of course, by doing this, Colgate-Palmolive was able to keep their Colonos market share. So sitting on my desk right now as I record, this is a red delicious apple. And on it is a little sticker with the number 4016, 4016 on it. So here's a question for you. And it's really just a very general question. What do the four and five digit numbers on produce mean? I mean, do they mean anything? Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In other news, here are a few stories that I found, well, interesting. Our first story is dated October 30th of 1931. It was reported that 80-year-old Llewellyn Hall had slumped over in a rocking chair inside of his Cleveland, Ohio home. His wife Emma checked for a pulse but could find none. So she contacted the police rescue squad who raced to the scene, but they were unable to revive Llewellyn. On the way to the morgue, the crew stopped at the hospital so they could obtain an official death certificate. Physicians there confirmed that there was no heartbeat, but they opted to try a stimulant to see if they could possibly revive Llewellyn. Suddenly his eyelids began to blink, and the doctors proceeded to apply artificial respiration, and Llewellyn was able to sit up. He told the doctors, quote, I guess I must have been out for a while. The police were kind enough to drive Llewellyn back home, 
Upon arrival, he was surprised to find that mourners had already arrived to offer his wife their condolences. As soon as his wife Emma laid eyes on her husband, she fainted. Llewellyn, the supposedly dead man, had to help revive his wife. Our next story, which is dated September 2nd of 1956, has to do with the early days of long-distance learning. And this is actually quite timely, considering so many schools in this country and around the world are closed due to the pandemic. So Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's educational television station, that's WQED, which of course would later be the home of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, will WQED join with local boards of educations to experiment with teaching French, reading, and arithmetic via television. This is quite revolutionary for 1956, if you think about it. Well, Dr. Edith Kern was administering a French examination from WQED studio to 650 fifth grade pupils that were located in 16 different schools in the western portion of Pennsylvania. When she reached question number 38 of the 44-question test, suddenly all of the TV screens went blank. It wouldn't be until Dr. Kern reached question number 41 that she would magically reappear on the screen. Now, as you know, teachers are incredibly mean, and everything is always the student's fault. So she marked those missing questions wrong on every single student's paper. (laughs) That's not really what happened. Those three missing questions were skipped when the exams were graded. The loss of signal during the exam was blamed on a power company line failure. And lastly, it was reported on July 6th of 1955 that 24-year-old Mrs. Annette Kotler of Hartford, Connecticut, heard someone knocking on the door of a second-floor apartment in her building at 390 Vine Street. Now, for your reference, the building was your typical two-story flat of that time period. You, know, you find them all over the United States. Well, when she heard the knock, Mrs. Collar had been giving her three-year-old son Lawrence a bath, and she really thought nothing of it. But just a short time later, she heard someone knocking on her own kitchen door. She opened the door until a safety chain was stretched to its limit. You know, the chain just stopped the door. And there she saw a tall, thin man who was wearing a rainbow-colored cap. He asked, Can I have a drink of water? Suspicious, Mrs. Cotler attempted to close the door, but he stuck his foot out and prevented her from doing so. At that moment, he drew out a long-barreled revolver and he told her to open the door. He threatened to shoot both Mrs. Cotler and her son if she did not. She really felt she had no choice and opened the door to let him in. As the man walked into their dining room, she took her son into the bedroom and, in an effort to comfort him, told young Lawrence that it was only, quote, a man who was here to fix the television set. She gave him a toy, laid him down in his crib, and he fell asleep. After that, the robber demanded money, to which Mrs. Cotler replied, quote, I don't have any. He asked, where's your pocketbook, as he proceeded to open every drawer in the house to search for money. Mrs. Cotler gave the bandit $3 in bills that she had in a kitchen cabinet, but he didn't take the change that was also in there. He also demanded that she take off her wedding ring, but she refused. She told him that if he got any closer, she would scream. She estimated that the robber was in the apartment about 15 minutes before leaving. He warned her, though. 
If you call the police, I will return tonight and kill you and your baby. Well, Mrs. Cotler ignored his threat and first called her husband and then two neighbors before notifying the police. What's interesting is that one month later, this is on August 3rd of 1955, Mrs. Cotler claimed that she had been assaulted in the hallway of her home. This time she claimed she had gone shopping with her mother, Mrs. Sadie Gipstein, and she had parked the car outside with her mother waiting inside the vehicle. As Mrs. Cotler entered the rear hallway, a young man came out and hit her on her left shoulder. She was taken to Mount Sinai Hospital and examined, but the doctor observed no bruises or injuries. This was the fifth complaint that Mrs. Cotler had made to the police over the previous 12 months regarding prowlers in her home. Now the leaves here in the northeastern United States have started to change color, and you know what that means. Autumn has started to set in. So imagine sitting before a warm fire with a cup of hot chocolate or hot tea in your hand, and you're snuggled under a blanket. You know what you really need? You need a good book to read, and I have the perfect one for you. It is titled The Flip Side of History, and it's written by me, Steve Silverman. In it, you'll find 40 fascinating true stories that time has forgotten. You'll learn about a man who pushed a wheelbarrow across the entire United States, a chicken named Alice who lived in a very unusual home, and two Florida men who almost pulled off the perfect bank heist. You'll find those stories and many more in the flip side of history. It's available right now through your favorite local or online bookseller. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. So early in the podcast, I'd asked you about those four and five digit numbers on your produce. Well, they're known as PLUs or price lookups, and it's a voluntary system that was started back in 1990. Today, over 1,400 of those PLUs have been assigned by the International Federation for Produce Standards, or the IFPS for short. All the numbers that they assign are in the three and 4,000 range. Now, I searched, I can't figure it out. It's unclear why they don't assign numbers in, say, the 2,000 range or the 6,000 range or the 7,000 range. I just couldn't find that anywhere. Maybe they're reserved for other industries. I don't know. Well, according to the IFPS website, quote, there is no intelligence built into the four-digit code. For example, no one number within the four-digit number represents anything in particular. So I'll give you a couple of examples here. 4259 are cherries, and 4304 are lemons. And all the different types of apples, of course, have their own codes. There are some ranges of numbers that are reserved for retailers to assign. For example, 3170 through 3270 and 4460 through 4469, they can be used by the retailer for any commodity that they wish. Now, if you look carefully at the numbers on your produce, you may notice that some of the labels have five digits and not four. That's because a nine may be placed in front of the number to indicate that the produce was organically grown. For example, the typical yellow banana is code number 4011, so organic bananas would be 94011. Now, I do need to point out that it's been misreported over and over again, and it's all over the internet, that if you see an eight as a leading number, it means that the produce has been genetically modified, you know, a GMO. Well, that was the original plan for the number 8, but it's no longer true. 
It turns out that the growers never used the number 8 convention in a retail setting, so it has since been dropped. And since there's only a limited number of codes in the 3 and 4,000 range, with the bulk of them already in use, the plan is to expand to a five-digit number beginning with the number 8. So let's suppose someday in the future you breed the most amazing apple that anyone has ever tasted. Let's call it the stupendous apple. Once you pay your licensing fee to the IFPS, they may assign the stupendous apple a five-digit number that reads something like 83216, but it is not a GMO. As for the stickers themselves, they are required to meet all national and local regulations for food safety. Basically, that means that the adhesive, the ink, the paper, the plastic film that is used, it must all be safe for direct and indirect contact with food products. I think it goes without saying that the labels should not be eaten, although I did have a student years ago who never took the labels off, and he simply ate them with his fruit. I bumped into his sister a while back, and she told me that he's doing well, and that he's the father of two children. So clearly the labels had no effect on him, although I heard that his kids do glow in the dark. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I do hope you found the story on the adoption of Hildy McCoy interesting. I know I certainly did. If you're curious, that restrictive Massachusetts law that required adoptive children be placed with families of the same religion, well, that was modified in 1976 to allow the judge to consider, quote, all relevant factors. Just a general reminder to be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at UselessInfoCast. That's at UselessInfoCast. And that'll allow you to be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there and it should pop up. I just wanted to let you know that Amazon recently launched their own podcast service and you can find the Useless Information Podcast there, as well as, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Anyway, thanks for listening and hope you tune in the next time. Take care, everyone. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.